0: Down ...a threat to decency and humanity. Week, along with cocaine, what is it stake is more than one small country. country. It it is a big idea. Because of a repression has been
1: will we'll gather the church. We'll faithful will gather, we'll we'll gather inside the church. Faithful, 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 faithful. faithful.
0: faithful. 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 faithful.
1: to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to delve a little bit into Foconelli, the mystery of the cathedrals. This is an important topic, and uh, of all the things out there, uh, I urge people, you need to learn about alchemy to have a true understanding as to what goes on in our world and how these uh, people that are actually in charge of our world actually run things here okay they understand these principles very well and they've used and abused these principles and turned them against the masses and kept them hidden from the masses and some of the uh, secrecy involved with alchemy is of sort of a necessity but for the most part a lot of it is hidden because this knowledge can be very useful for the common man to make real inroads in this world and the power structure does not want the public or or the, the common man to have a hold of this type of knowledge. The reason I say some of the, the secrecy surrounding it is necessary is because it's a type of study where if you're not far enough along on the trail you're going to completely miss what's being discussed and everybody's all at different levels so that that's one of those things where it's out of necessity, that many of these, uh, what they would call adepts of the principles of alchemy, this is this is why they kind of hide things under uh, a sort of veil, so to say. And I, I don't know if it's necessarily because the intention is to hide the true meaning, the esoteric meaning from people, or if it's because the using an exoteric story to describe an esoteric process is the most effective way of describing something if you don't understand the language or the nuance of it all you miss out on it and that's why it's it's one of those things where more you delve into this and study into it the more other topics you have to look at and understand It could get to be complicated for the average person, but we're going to try and break it down and make it simple. And I'll tell you what, as far as any writings out there go, Folconelli, Mystery of the Cathedrals, this book in particular has had a profound effect on my understanding of many of these things. I would recommend read it. You'll find some real gems of wisdom written within its pages. Some of these things you may pick up on some of the meanings, and some of it, you're going to be scratching your head and say, "What in the world are they talking about here?" Uh, but I assure you, it's it's definitely worth digging deeper into to figure out some of these different meanings, just to understand some of the language of symbology that's used by the people that actually control this world. We're we're not going to go very deep into the book tonight. We're we're only going to read some of the beginning sections of it here to give people a basic idea as to some of the broader sense of what exactly it is that these people in the power structure have been using in terms of forms of alchemy. And uh, I I would always recommend, uh, depending on which edition of this you pick up, there's like a first edition, second edition, you know, first published, first American edition, this kind of thing. Read the The prefaces, because there's some very profound ideas that are are covered in here, and as far as 20th century writings go, I, I rank this up there with just about anything else, honestly. There is so much wisdom and knowledge packed into this one book. We'll get into the reading here. Read the introduction by a gentleman named Walter Lang here, and he gets into some of the aspects of what's commonly known about alchemy and what it actually really is. Two universes... The universe of science and the universe of alchemy. To the scientist, alchemy is a farrago of medieval nonsense which enlightened materialist method has rightly consigned to the discard. To the alchemist, the scientific universe is no more than an abstraction from a much greater whole. Behind the science, says the alchemist, there is science with a capital S. All unsuspected except by a negligible few in every age. There exists a technology of noumena as superior to the technology of phenomena as a supernova is to a candle flame. To the alchemist, all the phenomena of the universe are combinations of a single prime energy inaccessible to ordinary senses. Only a minute cross-section of the total cosmic spectrum is bent by the senses, and so rendered tangible. Science has defined this minute abstraction as its total concern and is therefore condemned to turn endlessly inside a nutshell of its own making, learning ever more and more about less and less. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Walter Lang here, the the person who did the introduction here, is saying is pretty much that when you look at things with only the scientific method or look at things through the lens of this materialist science that the world uses you can only learn so much see and although you gain more and more knowledge it's about a smaller and smaller fractal of what's really out there and uh, there's a lot of abstract and subjective ideas that science can't quantify. And there's a lot of supernatural phenomena that science can't really quantify or explain. And that's what he's pointing out here. So uh, the the problem being is our modern science ignores this aspect of our reality, even though it's definitely there. But because they, they don't know how to measure it or explain it or quantify it, they dismiss it out of hand, as if it doesn't exist, and that this goes for spiritual ideas as well. Science is condemned to endlessly turn inside a nutshell of its own making. And that is a, a very true statement, and it's it's an, a profound statement to understand. Let's get back to the reading here, though. Since alchemists are popularly regarded as, at best, deluded, and at worst, deranged, a claim that alchemy is not only science with a lowercase s but science with a capital s not only a religion with a lowercase r but religion with a capital r is apt to be dismissed out of hand as derisory the scientific standpoint begins by being consistent man has certain senses and he has developed extensions of his senses which he calls instruments or tools folks so equipped, he investigates the universe around him and occasionally the universe inside himself. And I'm going to pause there. That's another profound statement. You can understand a lot more about the world around you and the universe around you by looking inward. As there is no sensory evidence for any other kind of universe, why drag one in? Dragging in hypotheses which are unnecessary to explain encountered facts is an affront to the principle of occam's razor and therefore to scientific good sense insofar as any discipline is entitled to define define its own concerns this is entirely legitimate what is not so tenable is to imply that because science has selected one possible universe the universe of fact and has been superbly successful in charting it no other universe can possibly exist Science, to be fair, does not exactly say this, but it is very happy to see the implication accepted. And I'm going to pause there. And that is truly the implication here that science wants to give, that it is the only viewpoint, the only way to view things. It's the only truth. See, and that's how science has been presented to us. And what they want to call science, well, the definition changes, doesn't it? It used to be that science was something that was you know, borne out through investigation, experimentation, and repeatability and using scientific method and many of these things. Now it's nothing more than a belief system. So when people say they trust the science, well, what science are they talking about? What's the definition of science there? And that's wherein we get to have the problem that we do, because it's this implication. That's the problem that this guy's talking about right here. Back to the reading. The situation is really the Plato's cave allegory one stage up. In Plato's cave, the shadow men live in a seemingly logical world. To them, a more solid world, and one inhabited by men with real eyesight, is a hypothesis unnecessary to explain the shadow world they live in. The shadow men say, in effect, we know nothing of this superior world you talk about, and we don't want to know. We have our own terms of reference, and we find them satisfactory. Please go away. This is precisely the attitude of modern materialist science to alchemy. In terms of the universe, we measure and know your supposed universe is nonsense. Therefore, we have no hesitation in asserting with complete confidence that your ideas are delusional. In effect, no case abuse the plaintiff's counsel— But is there no case? For some thousands of years, some of the best intellects of all cultures have been occupied with the ideas of alchemy. Weighed solely on statistical probability, does it seem likely that an entirely imaginary philosophy should attract ceaseless generations of men? The impasse is worse than it need be because of an almost accidental factor. Alchemy, so far as science has heard, is concerned with making gold, and such an activity is so associated with human credulity, cupidity, and unscience, generally that ordinary philosophy begs to be excused from involvement in anything so obviously puerile. Is alchemy concerned with making gold? Only in a specific case within a total situation. Alchemists are concerned with gold in much the same way that mesmer was concerned with hypnotism. The 20th century took a single aspect of mesmerism, truncated even that, and used the fragment for its own egoistic ends. It declared that it had investigated mesmerism, exposed its ridiculous pretensions, and rendered what was left scientific. Goethe has a word for this process. Truly, science drives out the spirit from the whole and proudly displays the separate bits. Dead. All dead. If alchemy isn't gold-making, what is it? Wilmshurst has defined it as the exact science of the regeneration of the human soul from its present sense-immersed state into the perfection and nobility of that divine condition in which it was originally created. However, he immediately goes on to offer a second definition, which clearly implies that, as with gold-making, soul-making is again only a specific case. By inference, a general theory of alchemy might be ventured. Alchemy is a total science of energy transformation. The action of an absolute in differentiating a prime source substance into a phenomenal universe is an operation in alchemy. The creation of galactic matter from energy and the creating of energy from matter is alchemy. God is an alchemist. The decay of radium into lead with the release of radioactivity is alchemy. Nature is an alchemist. The explosion of a nuclear bomb is alchemy. The scientist is now an alchemist. All such energy transformations are fraught with great danger, and the secrecy which has always surrounded Hermeticism is concerned with this aspect, among others. Nuclear energy was undoubtedly foreseen thousands of years ago. Chinese alchemists are said to have told their pupils that not even a fly on the wall should be allowed to witness an operation. Woe unto the world, they said, if the military ever learn the great secret. The military have learned the great secret, or at any rate, one specific aspect of it, and woe indeed to the world, for in the arrogant alchemy of nuclear science there is no place for goths get justices banned. But, if it has taken Western technology so long to uncover a single aspect of the subject, how is it that Bronze Age Egypt and Pythagorean Greece reputedly knew the whole science? Here, even the most guarded speculation must seem outrageous. Materialist science is content, or was until very recently, to suppose that life began as an accident, and that once the accident happened, All subsequent steps in evolution would, or at any rate could, follow as the mechanical consequence of the factors initially and subsequently present. Perhaps the process was improbable, but it was possible. Going to pause there, folks. Our materialist view from science has taken some of these ideas that were originally used in alchemy and was able to bear them out within the scientific world or at least that's the impression they want to give us. So whatever your stance is on the idea of the the whole nuclear science thing, whether you believe that that's a type of alchemical process or not, make no mistake about it, there are people in power the power structure in this world that think that it is. They think they've come upon something special with the advent of this quote-unquote nuclear technology. And although I Stand behind the viewpoint that as being misdescribed to us, uh, I do think they are playing with something they have no right to play with. And there are different alchemical possibilities that they have leveraged in a certain way and misused. But this is just one small aspect of the greater alchemical picture. Recent consideration, however, appears to show that by its intrinsic nature, chance expressly excludes such a possibility. For evolution to take place, there is required at every step a shift away from less organization towards more organization. The mechanistic view asserts that this enhancement of organization, this negative entropy, could be progressively established from the mechanical consolidation of favorable variations. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So what he's talking about here is a principle called in science that's well accepted. They call it entropy where all things tend back towards chaos or towards degeneration through time. So the whole idea of evolution is counter to that. So the whole idea of Darwinian evolution, or there once was nothing and then nothing exploded and became everything, this whole Big Bang concept, that whole idea, it's its nonsense, folks. I mean, it's proven out by the very quote-unquote science that they, they use to argue the point of it. All of this was divinely inspired and created. This realm that we live in came about as a type of continuum. All the things that are here came into being all at once and have continued on all at once because it's all interdependent on each other for its operation. So to try to accept that at one point, one day there was nothing and then nothing exploded and became everything is nonsensical. There's order here. It's organized. There's more organization and order. Everything that you see around you in the world around you points to some type of an intelligent design. So that being the case, the argument that many of the quote-unquote science backers would give you about uh, the Big Bang theory and evolution, and all these things that are taught pretty much as fact in school nowadays, which are only theories and terribly bad theories at that, they, they teach them as absolute fact. And that's, that's all part of the alchemical transmutation of the, the world mind as well, because that steers us further into the hypermaterialist viewpoint. Recent work in applying mathematical theory to biology suggests that there is a very big hole indeed in this particular bucket. Even if an increase in order arises fortuitously, this accidental shift must survive if it is to be built upon by the next similar accident. But its survival is by no means assured. Indeed, it appears to be vulnerable to collapse in proportion to its achievement. Even in the case of primitive life forms, and certainly in higher life forms, the number of possible combinations present at every stage is enormous. So enormous as to require that entropy must always increase at the expense of chance arisings in the contrary direction. Statistically, Evolution could not happen. As it demonstrably did happen, it must have done so not merely against probability, but actually against the possibilities present in a closed system. The conclusion seems unavoidable. The evolutionary process was not a closed system. And I'm going to pause right there, folks. I don't necessarily agree with this Mr. Lang as to what he's saying. I think the what they call the evolutionary process has been misdescribed to us and as i stated a little earlier this whole realm that we live in was created as a continuum meaning everything was created all at the same time and all interdependently on one another it all came into being at once see one thing did not evolve from another to think that is to think illogically in my view To think that the flowers and the bees evolved at different times, but yet one could not survive without the other, could they? And how could that be? See, so I don't necessarily agree with that assessment. Now he's talking, this cannot possibly be within a closed system. So he's using the argument that evolution arose in an open system, not a closed system, which also would denote some type of of an intelligent design factor wouldn't it so even though semantically i differ from the opinion of this guy conclusion is the same evolution as presented to us is nonsense it it does not stand up to scrutiny one bit it's illogical and it defies common sense so if it defies common sense and it could be proved to be nonsensical which which it can because we see in the world around us how everything tends towards this entropy towards decay or destruction or chaos over time, it is not possible that evolution could actually stand because it requires more order. So that being the case, this is not something that happens in the natural system that we see. Not in that type of a, a way, anyhow. It's been misdescribed, as I said. Anyway, let's read on, though. By extension, evolution and its present end product, man, must have been contrived by forces outside the system, or the biosphere, it says in parentheses, in which it occurred. Such an operation, involving the conscious manipulation of energy levels, may be taken as an operation in alchemy. Whether the artist who accomplished this great work was a single intelligence or a consortium of intelligences seems immaterial, but the myths and classical traditions of demigods is in the highest degree suggestive. If it is an acceptable proposition that man was the result of a carefully contrived alchemical operation by higher powers, is it not at least possible that he was given... In addition to consciousness, an insight into the transformation technique that produced him. On this assumption, modern man might have, in his own subconscious, fragmentary data which exceptional individuals could recover and assemble into a technology of alchemy. Inevitably, such men would be aware of other men who had made the same immense leap, and such groups would combine to create schools of alchemy. Gonna pause there, folks he's talking about secret societies or the mystery schools, isn't he? Let's continue on. There are other theories. One of the most arcane of human traditions suggests that the humanity of our Adam was not the Earth's first human race. Some very advanced alchemists have hinted at a range of previous humanities in excess of 30. If this is the true but wholly unsuspected history of our planet, much knowledge may have been selectively accumulated in a span of existence, which imagination is inadequate even to visualize. At each successive apocalypse, an arc would go out, encapsulating not only the germplasm necessary to found the next humanity, but with it also some vehicle, some psychological micro dot, containing the totality of accumulated knowledge. On this assumption, the technique of alchemy would have reached us as a transmission from ancestors whose existence we do not even suspect. A third possibility is that the master alchemists who made man in a solar laboratory have an interest in yet another transformation, the alchemization of man into planetary spirit their work may not yet be done. On this assumption, isolated scraps of suitable material would from time to time be selected for further processing in a solar alembic. The base metal in this case would consist of exceptional human beings, and since they would be at the level of incipient conscious energy, they would cooperate in their own transformation. Whether any or a combination of all these possibilities is the explanation of the presence of alchemy throughout human history, it is clear that alchemy existed at the dawn of the human story we know. The material of the Egyptian Book of the Dead was said to be old already when it was assembled by Semti in the First Dynasty some 5,000 years ago. Perhaps due to the second law of thermodynamics, which may be as relevant in biology and psychology as it is in dynamics, the evolutionary ferment of Egyptian alchemy began to involve. Maybe the mechanism of its degeneration was a shift in the level of will from which it proceeded. An evolutionary technique would thus become increasingly enlisted for involuntary ends. Alchemy, God-oriented, would become magic, self-dedicated. Such would be the dying Egypt against which Moses invade. As always, however, knowledge of the technique was compressed, a torch was lit, an ark was launched. Before Egypt became totally submerged in idolatry, the great secret was transmitted. The seeds of alchemy were scattered. Some fell on good ground and flourished. Some fell on stony ground and died. Egypt seems to have sown chiefly in Greece and Israel, perhaps also in China. Strange as the idea may be, Greece appears to have made less of her chances than she might. The glory that was Greece may have been a poor shadow of the glory that might have been. Also, Greece stood to Rome as parent to offspring, and Rome proved to be a delinquent child and a degenerate adult in the community of human cultures. The plant of alchemy flowered only briefly in Greece, and the seeds that blew to Rome never germinated at all. The transmission from Egypt to Israel was one of great promise, but again, the promise was not realized. Whether wilting of the plant in Israel was due to the dispersion, or whether the dispersion was a consequence of the Jewish failure to manage their alchemical inheritance, is not known. The elders of Jewry, at any rate, were unable to find conditions within which their inheritance could be brought to its full actualization. To ensure its survival in some measure, they were obliged to compromise dangerously. They externalized some of it in the Zohar and maintained a small initiated inner circle. It may be that this circle, very greatly depleted, survived in Europe in isolated pockets like Krakow until the 30s of the present century. He's referring to the 1930s there. And doesn't that still go on today? There's small inner circles within many of these quote-unquote secret society groups that bring forward some of this alchemical knowledge today. It's gone on through all the ages, and much of it has been lost or perverted or completely inverted from what it originally meant. So that being the case, there's much to beware when you're looking through this type of information because there's a lot of misinformation and misdirection placed in there as well because they never truly put the secrets in plain English, in plain writing, in a book of any sort. They kind of dance around and skirt around the subjects or talk in vague metaphors. That's part of what makes it so difficult to learn about some of these alchemical concepts. A lot of them could go over your head. This is how it works. If you don't have the key or the cipher to translating what they're saying, you can't understand what it is they're presenting. It just sounds nonsensical. And that's why so many people would look at this stuff and just say, yeah, it looks like a bunch of nonsense and just give up on it straight away. When the problem is, they're missing the real meaning behind it. See, when they're talking about transmuting lead into gold, folks, they're not talking about taking physical lead, a physical bar of lead, and turning it into a physical bar of gold. That's not what's going on at all with alchemy. Now, there are some that would argue the fact that, yes, there are real alchemists who who can do that and transmute the metals. That may be. I, I don't know. I've never seen it in my lifetime I've never seen evidence of it in my lifetime. Generally speaking, this is speaking of more spiritual things. See, it's code. It's secret code. When they're talking about transmuting lead into gold, that's not what they're talking about at all. Most of the time, it's about transformation of your soul. And that's what uh, this gentleman was alluding to early on in his introduction here. But let's, let's continue reading and see what else he has to say here before we get actually into the words of Fulconelli himself. To ensure its survival in some measure, they were obliged to compromise dangerously. They externalized some of it in the Zohar and maintained a small initiated inner circle. It may be that this circle, very greatly depleted, survived in Europe in isolated pockets like Krakow until the 30s of the present century. While Greece sowed abortively in Rome during her lifetime, she also sowed posthumously and successfully in Arabia. Here, the alchemical energy channeled through the esoteric schools of Islam and through exceptional individuals like Jabir, externalized in the veritable explosion of Mohammedan art and science of the 8th to 12th centuries. The wave of Islam's expansion reached Spain, where two streams appear to have joined up. Gonna pause right there, folks. Pay attention here now. This is where it becomes important and Uh, where we'll begin to see some of the different nuances of language they use here. Now, it talks about two streams. In some of these esoteric things and alchemical things, they refer to something that they call the underground stream, how this information moves forward almost of its own accord through different means that people would not suspect, in hidden ways, unseen ways. They call this the underground stream stream. And you could trace it through different secret society groups and different movements, forward and backward through time, and find the trail for the the moving forward of some of these alchemical secrets. The underground stream, keep that idea in mind. With uh, Islam's expansion, when it reached Spain, two streams appear to have joined up. So let's continue reading from there. In Seville and Granada, there were initiated Jews who carried the Egyptian transmission, They met Arab initiates who carried the Greek transmission, and the latter were perhaps reinforced from a permanent powerhouse from which all evolutionary operations are directed. If it is true that some, and this is in quotation marks, beads of mercury were reunited through Mohammed, two more were reunited in Spain. Out of this confluence grew a large part of the whole of Western civilization, which we have inherited and whose origin hardly one man in a million has ever suspected in seven centuries. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So he's referring to these beads of mercury. These would be these two underground streams that met in Spain. One of them coming from uh, the Mohammedans or the, the Arabs, Arabia, which was transmitted from the Greek alchemists and the other one was from the Jews which was transmitted from the Egyptian alchemists and these two schools of thought combined together in Spain at the birthplace of the Jesuits folks just you know putting it out there for you a lot of these ideas have capitulated the the rise and the advent of the modern western society that's the implication he's making here The current which flowed from the beads of mercury, which were reunited in Spain, flowed into an immense invisible force field over Europe. The nature of this noumenal structure can never be glimpsed, and its functions in a higher dimension cannot even be imagined. It externalized into the common life in a series of culture components, which in aggregate constitute a large part of Western civilization. Going to pause there. The confluence of these two alchemical underground streams of how the alchemical how processes were transmitted through time, when they met and came back together in Spain, it spread through all of Europe and pretty much helped to shape the spirit of modern Western society. A selection of these factors at random would include the Christian pilgrimage based on the form established by the Cluniacs to St. James of Compostela, the Crusades, heraldry the orders of chivalry chivalry from the horse as a glyph of the alchemical volatile and i'm going to pause there folks that's an important idea you may have heard me discuss in previous places on previous shows with crow triple seven and others the idea of the horse being a very important alchemical symbol and this is one of the reasons why it represents the alchemical volatile and it also represents cabala cabal caballo horse See, in Spanish, the Kabbalah, the phonetic Kabbalah, Kabbalah with a C, the horse. It's a vehicle for alchemical thought. And so when people identify themselves as Kabbalists or through use of the horse as a symbol, a.k.a. your, your Templars, they used the horse as a symbol, didn't they? This is conferring to you the idea of alchemy. They, they understand alchemical principles. They are purveying alchemical principles. They're part of this underground stream. Also, when you see people referred to as equestrian class in the ancient world, well, these were families that held together and, and brought forward this underground current, this underground stream of alchemical information and teaching. Many of these secret society groups, they use the horse. As a symbol. It's an important symbol. That's why other things like unicorns and Pegasus and all of these other horse based creatures, centaurs, and that'll be an important one coming up here in the near future for anybody paying attention to the transhumanist movement. You may have heard the term centaur in regards to the transhumanist movement, and this talks about the combination of the human being with machines. They call it a centaur in many circles, including at DARPA. And there's a reason that they invoke this archetype, okay, this horse idea. They're talking about alchemical principles. Just to put that out there, just as a little aside for people. But I don't want to venture too far from the reading for right now, because we still got a lot of ground to cover. Chivalry from the horse as a glyph of the alchemical volatile. Castle architecture. The gothic cathedrals. Illumination and embroidery. The troubadours. Albigensas. Cathars. And the courtly romances, the Arthurian quest theme reuniting the Celtic pre-Christian grail quest, the cult of the Virgin in Catholicism, the theological philosophy of Albertus Magnus and St. Thomas Aquinas, the cosmology of Bacon, the devotional systems of St. Francis, St. John of the Cross, and St. Teresa, the Wandering Players, Jester, Harlequinades, and Mystery Plays, Specialized Dancing, Falconry, and Certain Ball Games. Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, gardening, the Spanish gardens, playing cards, the language of the birds concept, the craft guilds, archery, some medicine like immunology, paracelsus, and homeopathy, and cybernetics, Raymond Lilly. Gonna pause there. So all those things, folks, he's naming these as having arisen from these quote-unquote beads of mercury that he speaks of, the combination, the combining of these two underground streams of the Egyptian and Greek alchemists that came together in Spain and spread throughout Europe. And these are all the different ideas and things that arose from that. All the foregoing were the externalized forms of a major alchemical operation at an invisible level. Only one aspect, however, that of chemical alchemy, used the terminology which has been subsequently identified with the word. For some hundreds of years, alchemy existed in Europe as a real science of transformation at many levels. At one level, it was concerned with the ultimate transformation of human souls. And I'm going to pause there, folks what mr Lang is pointing out here is that alchemy came to be identified with chemistry this is really a disservice to alchemy as a whole because it's only one small aspect of the process chemistry so it's taken some of the ideas and only spread it forward through chemistry into our modern age so it's it's kind of been misconstrued as to what it was and it was obfuscated this way on purpose anyway let's let's read on Perhaps because Christianity had rejected the wisdom component of its total revelation, a decision in which Constantine was probably crucial, alchemy, being concerned with the totality, had to operate in disguise. Precisely because orthodox religion was defective in the wisdom component, any modality which contained it was ipso facto heresy. The genuine Christian alchemists, estimated to number 4,000 between 1200 and 1656, re-adopted a chemical code which had served in similar circumstances in the past. A certain principle of nature, rendered in the codex attributed to Hermes, as above, so below, ensured that the alchemical process at its hidden level could be represented with full integrity by the terminology of a lower discipline." This lower discipline, metallic chemistry, was all that the common life of Europe ever understood by the word alchemy. Gonna pause there, folks. The derivation of alchemy now, in the modern era, people misconstrue it as being the precursor and a primitive precursor at that, that was totally unscientific, of our modern day chemistry. That's how they view alchemy, as to what it was, what it is. That's not the case. Okay, it's, it was misidentified on purpose and kept secret on purpose. Let's read on. Since Carl Jung's work in alchemy began to infiltrate modern psychology, alchemy as a mental, or at any rate a non-physical process, has become a fashionable acceptance. Typical of the reductionist attitudes of the 20th century is the current belief that alchemy has now been explained. It is nothing but an early and crude study of psychology and perhaps of ESP. Dazzled by the success of science in providing a label for everything, few have bothered to inquire whether the aphorism of Hermes, as above, so below, might not require a process valid at mental level to be equally valid at physical level. Gonna pause there and this is an important idea he's saying here that many in the early 20th century when they started studying quote-unquote psychology as a science uh, they settled the discussion as to what alchemy is talking about the transmutation of the soul or the mind or, or these ideas they equated it to nothing more than a primitive version of psychology, once again another obfuscation. And basically the, the word alchemy was transformed into chemistry and only those physical principles were brought forward into the modern era. And al- alchemy as a science or a discipline was largely poo-pooed by the power structure. A label has been affixed and therefore the mystery is no more. No one, it seems, notices any conflict between the Jungian psychological interpretation and the documented historical record of men like Helvidius and the Cosmopolite, Alexander Seton, it says with a question mark, who demonstrably did make tangible yellow 22-karat gold. That which is above is as that which is below might never have been written." Throughout the whole European record of alchemy, its genuine practitioners appear to have been under certain obligations which may, in fact, apply to artists in the work of every age. And work has a capital W, folks. It seems that they are required to leave behind them some thread which those who come after may use as a guideline across the web of Ariadne. Gonna pause there. Ariadne, the web of Ariadne. Remember that Ariadne... A-R-I-A-D-N-E, and and look this up. This is all in Greek mythology. This might be actually a wordplay game on the arachne. So when we're talking about the web of Ariadne, think of arachne, because these, these two words may have the same Kabbalistic root word or the same etymological root word if you want to use that term. I'm thinking in terms of what this gentleman had alluded to here, this language of the birds idea, or what we would call the phonetic Kabbalah, among other things. The indications provided must be in code, and the code must be self-canceling. That is, an inquirer who does not possess the first secret must be infallibly prevented from discovering the second unto him that hath is nowhere better exemplified than in the attempt to study alchemical texts and i'm going to pause there folks so what he's talking about is a lot of times they use language unto him that hath understanding or let him who hath understanding and we see this in the bible as well and i I want to point that out to people whenever the statement in the bible starts with something like that Understand there's a hidden alchemical meaning being implied here. There's a lot of important ideas that are bound up in this book. Given that the inquirer knows the first secret, search and unceasing labor may rest from the code the next step following, but the searcher will need to have made progress in his own personal practice before he is able to unravel a further step. Thus, the secret protects itself. And I'm going to pause there. And this is kind of the whole idea as to why alchemy is kept secret. It's because it's a necessity for you to understand the first principle in order for you to understand the second principle. You can't just say, okay, all right, let's move on. Let's, let's look at this, 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 and this and then tie it all together. No, first you have to have full understanding of the first principle to move on to the second principle. And that's why these things work in the way that they are and why studying something like alchemy is a very subjective thing. Everybody's experience with it is different. Everybody learns in a different way. And it's actually how the human mind was intended to learn things. You learn at your own pace, in your own way, at your own time. And that is a natural process. And that's what alchemy reflects, especially learning about these alchemical principles and and these different ideas. You learn on your own, in your own way, in the way that interests you, in in the order that interests you. But there's a certain path that's laid out uh, for those that study alchemy. So in order to understand the second principle, first you need to have a full understanding of the first principle, and then you can move from there. And not everybody understands that principle in the same way see it's a subjective thing like i said and that's what makes it difficult for one person to show another what is alchemy because everybody's experience with it is slightly different but once you get it you get it and you can move on to your your next step down the path so to say these things do kind of protect themselves if you don't understand the language of symbolism they have no better way to explain it to you plainly. It's caught up in that language of symbolism. So you have to understand the, the symbolic language they're using to get to the next step on the path. So that's the only way they could lay it out for you. In the course of his work, the alchemist may come to understand that certain familiar legends have a wholly new, practical, and unsuspected meaning. He may suddenly discover what Abraham was required to sacrifice and why, what the star in the east really heralds, what the cross may symbolize, and why the veil of the temple was rent. The strictly alchemical aspect of the great work has been quiescent in Europe for about three centuries, but rare and exceptional individuals still find their way through the maze, perhaps by making contact with a source outside Europe and achieve one of or other of the degrees of the magnum opus. Few such instances come to the knowledge of the outside world, but one exception to the general rule is the case of the modern alchemist, who has come to be known as Falconelli. In the early twenties, a French student of alchemy, Eugene Cancellier, was studying under the man now known as Falconelli. One day, the latter charged concilier with the task of publishing a manuscript, and then disappeared. The manuscript was the now-famous Mystery des Cathedrals, and its publication caused a sensation in esoteric circles in Europe. From internal evidence, the author was a man who had either completed, or was on the brink of completing, the magnum opus. Interest in such an individual among those who knew what was involved was enormous. For nearly half a century, painstaking research has gone on in an effort to trace the vanished master. Repeated attempts by private individuals to pick up the trail, and on at least one occasion by an international intelligence agency, have all ended in a blank wall of silence. To most, the conclusion seemed inescapable. Fulconelli, if he ever existed, must be dead. One man knew better. Falconelli's former pupil, Concilier. After a lapse of many years, Concilier received a message from the alchemist and met him at a prearranged rendezvous. The reunion was brief, for Falconelli once again severed contact and once again disappeared without leaving a trace of his whereabouts. One circumstance of the reunion was very remarkable, and in an alchemical sense of the highest significance. Falconelli had grown younger. Concellier has told the present writer, the master, when Concellier had worked with him, was already a very old man, but he carried his eighty years lightly. Thirty years later, I was to see him again, as I have mentioned, and he appeared to be a man of fifty. That is to say, he appeared to be no older than I was myself. One other possible appearance of the mysterious master alchemist is reported by the French researcher Jacques Bergier. While working as assistant to André Helbronner, the noted physicist who was later to be killed by the Nazis, Bergier was approached one day by an impressive individual who asked Bergier to pass on to Helbronner a strange and highly knowledgeable warning. This was to the effect that orthodox science was on the brink of manipulating nuclear energy. The stranger said it was his duty to warn that the same abyss had been crossed by humanity in the past with disastrous consequences. Knowing human nature, he had no hope that such a warning would have any effect, but it was his duty to give it. The mysterious stranger then left. Bergier is convinced to this day that he was in the presence of Fulconelli. Treatises have been written to prove that Focanelli was a member of the former French royal family, the Valois, that he was the painter Julian Champagne, that he was this or that occultist. Not a few were driven to the conclusion that Focanelli was a myth, and that no such person had ever existed. This theory is a little difficult to sustain in view of the existence of Mystery of the Cathedrals. This work is authoritatively accepted as the work of a man who had gone far, very far, in the practice of alchemy. The myth theory is also untenable against the testimony of Conselier. In September 1922, in a laboratory... At Sarcelles, in the presence of the painter Julien Champagne and the chemist Gaston Sauvage, Concilié himself made an alchemical transmutation of 100 grams of gold using a minute quantity of the powder of projection given to him by his teacher. Thus, there is a European, alive at the present time, who personally testifies not only to the existence of Fulconelli, but to the veridical nature of an event which modern science regards as an absurd myth. Legend has it that this transmutation took place in a gas works. The account seems the plainest possible statement of a purely physical event. Alchemists, however, Warn repeatedly that when their descriptions seem plainest, the camouflage factor is highest. The alerted reader will certainly consider here that a gasworks is a site where a volatile substance is produced from a heavy mineral, and will recall that alchemy is a process of separating the fine from the gross. In being allowed to perform an alchemical operation with energy lent him by another, cancillier thus joins a remarkable band of privileged, and perhaps bewildered, people who through history have recorded the same experience. These include Johann Schweitzer, whose experience was investigated by Spinoza, Professor Deinheim of Freiburg in 1602, and Christian II Elector of Saxony in the following year. But for all practical purposes, Falconelli has vanished as though he never existed. Only his contributions to literature of alchemy remains, mystery of the cathedrals. It has long been believed that the Gothic cathedrals were secret textbooks of some hidden knowledge, that behind the gargoyles and the glyphs, the rose windows and the flying buttresses, a mighty secret lay, all but openly displayed." This is no longer a theory. Given that the reader of Mystery of the Cathedrals has ever begun to suspect the first secret, Fulconelli's legacy is at once seen as an exp- exposition of an incredible fact. That wholly unsuspected by the profane, the Gothic cathedrals have for 700 years offered European man a course of instruction in his own possible evolution. About one thing it seems impossible to have any doubt. The unknown who wrote Mystery of the Cathedrals knew. Fulconelli speaks as one having authority. By pointing to a glyph in Notre Dame or a statue in uh, Amiens, and relating an unknown sculptor's work to some ancient or modern text, Focanelli is indicating the steps in a process he has himself been through. Like all who truly knew... From Hermes, through Geber, and the Greek and Arab artists, to Lully, Paracelsus, and Flamel, Fulconelli masks and reveals in equal measure, and like all before him, he is wholly silent on the initial step of the practice. But in his method of repeatedly underlining certain words, and perhaps in some curious sentences on the rose windows, he suggests, as explicitly as he dares, the mightiest secret that man may ever discover. Behold, said Boehm, he will show it to you plain enough if you be a Megus and worthy, else you shall remain blind still. All right, folks, that's the end of the introduction here. It was important that we do that introductory part to give you a feeling as to just who this Folcanelli guy was, first of all, and, and some of the ideas that are imparted. In a general sense from alchemy and where we stand in the modern age and what some of the opinions of those more learned than myself in these things are in regards to to these different ideas. And we're going to go through these first three sections here and I will give you some of my input into these things because many of these writings have had a profound effect upon my understanding of things. And some of these connections, you'll see as we go through, if you've been a student trying to follow along with many of these esoteric type things or trying to have better understanding of the language of symbology and, and these other ideas that people in the secret society groups and, and those in positions of power in this world use to communicate with one another, you'll pick up on some different things here as we go on that I might not necessarily have to point out to you. And maybe there are things that I myself have overlooked that you could pick up upon. And that's why it's important that we, we read these texts, because many of us will be able to garner different meanings from some of these things based upon our subjective experiences, because that's how the alchemical process works. And maybe... You have a piece of the puzzle that I don't, and I have a piece of the puzzle that you don't. And in order to better understand the big picture of what we're looking at today, it's important that we put together these puzzle pieces. And to do so, using the works of a guy like Foconelli, because he, he wrote this book for a reason. He came out of the shadows and put together this work and then promptly disappeared without fanfare or wealth or privilege or anything else that goes with it. Nobody knew who the guy was, and maybe he's a myth. But if that's the case, that doesn't disregard any of the importance in this writing. So this writing came from somewhere, and it's obviously written by somebody that has a very intrinsic understanding of these things. So that's why it's important that we we take the time to read this material and try to garner whatever meaning we can out of many of these things. So let's get right into it. Section 1. The strongest impression of my early childhood. I was seven years old an impression of which I still retain a vivid memory, was the emotion aroused in my young heart by the sight of a Gothic cathedral. I was immediately enraptured by it. I was in an ecstasy, struck with wonder, unable to tear myself away from the attraction of the marvelous, from the magic of such splendor, such immensity, such intoxication expressed by this more divine than human work. Since then, The vision has been transformed, but the original impression remains. And if custom has modified the spontaneous and moving character of my first contact, I have never acquired a defense against a sort of rapture when faced with those beautiful picture books erected in our closes and raising to heaven their pages of sculptured stone. In what language, by what means, could I express my admiration? How could I show my gratitude to those silent masterpieces, those masters without words and without voice? How could I show the thankfulness which fills my heart for everything they have taught me to appreciate, to recognize, and to discover? Without words and without voice, what am I saying? If those stone books have their sculptured letters, their phrases in bas-relief, and their thoughts in pointed arches nevertheless they speak also through the imperishable spirit which breathes from their pages they are clearer than their younger brothers the manuscripts and printed books they have the advantage over them in being translatable only in a single absolute sense it is simple in expression naive and picturesque in interpretation a sense purged of subtleties of allusions of literary ambiguities The language of stones, spoken by this new art, as J. C. Colfs says, with much truth, is at the same time clear and sublime, speaking alike to the humblest and to the most cultured heart. What a moving language it is! This Gothic of the stones, a language of so moving indeed that the songs of Orlando, Delassus, or Palestrina, the organ music of Handel or Frescobaldi, the orchestral works of Beethoven, or Cherubini, or which is greater than all these, the simple and severe Gregorian chant, perhaps the only real chant there is, do nothing but add to the emotions which the cathedral itself has already aroused. Woe to those who do not like Gothic architecture, or at least let us pity them as those who are without heart." The Gothic cathedral, that sanctuary of the tradition, science, and art, should not be regarded as a work dedicated solely to the glory of Christianity, but rather as a vast concretion of ideas, of tendencies, of popular beliefs, a perfect whole, to which we can refer without fear, whenever we would penetrate the religious, secular, philosophic, or social thoughts of our ancestors." The bold vaulting, the nobility of form, the grandeur of the proportions, and the beauty of the execution combine to make a cathedral an original work of incomparable harmony, but not one, it seems, concerned entirely with religious observance. If the tranquility in the ghostly multicolored light from the tall stained-glass windows and the silence combine as an invitation to prayer, Predisposing us to meditation, the trappings, on the other hand, the structure and the ornamentation, in their extraordinary power, release and reflect less edifying sensations, a more secular, and, quite bluntly, an almost pagan spirit. Beside the fervent inspiration, born of a strong faith, the thousand and one preoccupations of the great heart of the people can be discerned there. The declaration of its conscience, of its will, the reflection of its thought at its most complex, abstract, essential, and autocratic. If people go to the building to take part in religious services, if they enter it following a funeral cortege or the joyful procession of a high festival, they also throng there in many other circumstances— Political meetings are held there under the aegis of the bishop. The price of grain and livestock is discussed there. The drapers fix the price of their cloth there. People hurry there to seek comfort, to ask for advice, to beg for pardon. There is scarcely a guild which does not use the cathedral for the passing out ceremony of its new journeymen. Scarcely a guild which does not meet there once a year under the protection of its patron saint." During the great medieval period, it was the scene of other ceremonies, very popular with the masses. There was the Feast of Fools, or of the Wise, a processional hermetic fair which used to set out from the church with its pope, its dignitaries, its enthusiasts, and its crowds, the common people of the Middle Ages, noisy, frolicsome, jocular, bursting with vitality, enthusiasm, and spirit, and spread through the town what a comedy it all was with an ignorant clergy thus subjected to the authority of the disguised science and crushed under the weight of undeniable superiority ah the feast of fools with its triumphal chariot of bacchus drawn by a male and a female centaur Naked as the god himself, and accompanied by the great Pan, an obscene carnival taking possession of a sacred building, nymphs and naiads emerging from the bath. Gods of Olympus minus their clouds and minus their clothes, Juno, Diana, Venus, and Latona converging on a cathedral to hear Mass. And what a Mass! It was composed by... The initiate Pierre de Corbel, Archbishop of Sens, and modeled on a pagan rite. Here, a congregation of the year 1220 uttered the bacchanical cry of joy, Evoe, Evoe, and scholars in ecstasy replied, I can't read this because this is in Latin and I don't speak Latin, folks. There was also the Feast of the Donkey, almost as gaudy as the one just mentioned, with the triumphal entry under the sacred archway of Master Alaboron, whose hoof, sabot, it says here in in parentheses, S-A-B-O-T, once trod the streets of Jerusalem. And I'm going to pause there, folks, because at this point here, and in the previous part where it talked about centaurs, once again, we'll see a little bit more of the Horse symbolism here. Foconelli is kind of being forthright here in somewhat of a sense sense with this stuff. But you see how the ideas are drawn together. And he's talking about these festivities and festivals and stuff that used to take place at the cathedral. Uh, How it wasn't just a religious place. It wasn't just dedicated to the Christian religion. And it wasn't just a place of worship. It was used by all different manners of society. It was a place celebrated by all different facets of society. It was used by the guilds and used by all of these other people and in these different celebrations. So let's continue with the reading, but just take notice to the the allusion here to the ideas of the centaur and the horse, as we discussed earlier, because those are important ideas that are a recurring theme that you'll see throughout much of uh, society here. And a lot of those ideas do play directly to the ideas of alchemy. And thus, our glorious Christ-bearer was celebrated in a special service, which praised him, in words recalling the epistle as the asinine power, which was worth to the church the gold of Arabia, the incense in the myrrh of the land of Saba. The priest, being unable to understand this grotesque parody, had to accept it in silence. His head bent under the ridicule poured out by these mystifiers of the land of Saba or Kaba—that's S-A-B-A or C-A-B-A—that is the Kabbalists themselves. Confirmation of these curious celebrations is to be found graven by the chisels of the master image makers of the time. Indeed, Witkowski writes that in the nave of Notre Dame of Strasbourg, the bas-relief on one of the capitals of the Great Pillars represents a satirical procession in which a pig may be seen carrying a holy stoop, followed by donkeys dressed in priestly clothes and monkeys bearing various religious attributes, together with a fox enclosed in a shrine. It is the procession of the fox, or the feast of the donkey. We may add that an identical scene is illuminated in folio 40 of manuscript number 5055 in the Bibliothèque Nationale. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So he's talking about this procession of the fox, or the feast of the donkey. And he's alluding that some of these different festivals and festivities were based on older pagan models that these these were pagan feasts of sorts that were adopted by the church in these days the, the Christian church usually the cathedrals were central to this idea and many of the kabbalists and and the alchemists and the, the people who knew these different secrets understood the messages that were being conveyed in these festivities although they made no sense in terms of the church or church tradition the church still went ahead and celebrated these festivities you know much like things like halloween today the christian church just goes along and plays along and celebrates much like all the holidays they've all been tainted with these different pagan ideas so to say or you know what they would term as pagan but in reality much of which have hidden alchemical meanings or or things of that nature as well and have been grossly misconstrued through the years. Finally, there were some bizarre events in which a hermetic meaning, often a very precise one, was discernible. These were held every year with the Gothic church as their theater. Examples include the Flagellation of the Alleluia, in which the choir boys energetically whipped their humming tops, sabbats, down the aisles of the Cathedral of Langres, the procession of the, the Shrovetide Carnival, the Devilry of Chaumont, the procession and banquets of the Infanterie de Journays. The latter was the last echo of the Feast of Fools, with its mad mother, its body diplomas, its banner on which two brothers, head to foot, Delighted in uncovering their buttocks. Until 1538, when the custom died out, a strange ball game was played inside St. Etienne, the cathedral of Auxerre. And that's the end of section one here. So what he's pointing out is many of these traditions these these different festivities and stuff that took place in the days of of the church here up until the time of about the the 1500s mid-1500s or so all of these things up until the times of what we would term now the renaissance these different celebrations and stuff that happened there they didn't make sense from a christian point of view the things that they did or celebrated but they went ahead and they did it anyway because it was tradition. And, and many of the ideas were drawn from, from different pagan cultures. But they allowed it for sake of the fact that it was revelry. And uh, the, the church, the Gothic church, the Gothic cathedral, was central to a lot of this because it was not only a religious place or a religious institution, but it was a center of society. It was of social interest to people. Many of these things took place, and many of these celebrations had very distinct alchemical meanings to them. And and we'll see, when you get later into the reading of this book, this procession of the fox or the feast of the donkey, these things will take on a different meaning when you get deeper into alchemical processes and things like that. Uh, so that's why Falconelli was pointing that out here. Now, many of these things he foreshadows for later on in the book, and we're not going to get that far tonight because there's just so many things broken down in here. But think of the fox as a symbol, the fox. There, there's important ideas. There's there's alchemical processes tied to the idea of the fox. So that's that's one of the things he's alluding to there. I think it's important that we start to draw the connections once again to things going on today back to these occultic origins of these things. So that's why it's important that we take a venture into stuff like this. And It's not all negative, and it's not all evil and bad. And that's what people get hung up on a lot of times, is because the people in positions of power today, they've taken a lot of these ideas, these concepts, these alchemical concepts, and they've perverted them and twisted them for their own greedy gains and used them against the common man. The problem here is... We, as the common man, we don't—we're not privy to many of these ideas anymore. They've been hidden from us. But they've kept a lot of these ideas hidden from us because they use them against us all the time. They understand some of these basic tenets of how the world works that we don't see. So that being the case, we do need to explore these things and point out how it's being misused against us, and not only that, the important ideas behind. Many of these things can be used by us to turn this thing back around. And that's the important thing. So let's continue with the reading here. The cathedral was the hospitable refuge of all the unfortunates. The sick who came to Notre Dame in Paris to pray to God for relief from their sufferings used to stay on till they were cured. They were allotted a chapel lit by six lamps near the second door. There they spent the night. There, the doctors would give their consultations round the holy water stoop at the very entrance to the basilica. It was there, too, that the Faculty of Medicine, which left the university in the 13th century to continue independently, gave lectures. This continued to be the custom until 1454, when its last meeting took place, presided over by Jacques Despartes. I'm gonna pause there. So, you see, the cathedral. And this is talking about the Notre Dame Cathedral folks in Paris. It was actually used as a hospital and as a medical school of the day. Uh, people went there for healing. See, these are important ideas, and this is stuff that's not discussed in history. and people just look at this building and think, okay, it's just a big gaudy church that the you know the Catholic Church built because they had an exorbitant amount of money, so they made these big buildings just for for show and that's not the case there's there's different things encoded in there it's not just a a christian church see there's there's more to these cathedrals than that it's not meant or intended to be just a church as it's presented it was used as a hospital it was used by these guilds was used for many other things it was built on alchemical principles folks and that's that's the whole point here let's get back to the reading The cathedral is the inviolable sanctuary of the hunted and the burial place of the illustrious dead. It is the city within a city, the intellectual and moral center, the heart of public activity, the apotheosis of thought, knowledge, and art. And I'm going to pause there, folks. You see the idea of this being a city within the city? It's the inner circle. Folks, this is once again one of these ideas that's been perverted uh, by those in positions of power today. The use of this inner circle, this city within a city type idea to maintain their power. They, they use a small portion within something else. They, they take hold of a, a movement within another movement. And they capture control over that movement in that way. See, they, they've used this principle as a means of control. That's why they, they infiltrate grassroots movements. And take control of them. They, they use infiltration as a means. And this is an alchemical idea. The idea of the heart. At the heart of the city. This was the heart of the city. And it's not necessarily a bad idea. But the way they've manipulated it. And turned it into something bad. This is what they do. This is how they take control of different things. They, they take something that was good. And they infiltrate it. So that they could get to the heart of it. See the idea of the, the city within the city, the heart of the city? The cathedral was the heart of the city. And since they took control over the cathedral and secreted away all of the things encoded within it from the public, they took control of the city in that way, didn't they? By taking control of the heart of the matter. And that's that's one of the uh, principles, and it's kind of a what you would call a philosophical principle, and and that's the thing. A lot of these ideas that that you get from reading into these alchemical thought processes, you have to think outside the box. You have to think in ways that we weren't taught in our modern society, like our modern hyper-materialist scientific viewpoint of things. So when you're thinking in a philosophical sense, to get to the heart of the matter, that's exactly what this is. That's what the cathedral was intended to be, the heart of the city. And so Once they took control of these buildings, these hearts of the city, well, they were able to steer culture that way, weren't they? And that's an important concept to understand in the the social engineering aspect of things. Uh, Let's continue reading here, though. The host of bristling monsters, of grotesques and comic figures, of masks, of menacing gargoyles, dragons, vampires, and tarasks, all these were the secular guardians of an ancestral patrimony. Here, art and science, formerly concentrated in the great monasteries, have emerged from their seclusion and colonized the cathedral. They cling to the steeples, to the pinnacles, to the flying buttresses. They hang from the coving, fill the niches. They transform the windows into precious stones and endow the bells with sonorous vibrations. They expand on the church front into a glorious explosion of liberty and expression. Nothing could be more secular than the exotericism of this teaching, nothing more human than this profusion of quaint images, alive, free, animated, and picturesque, sometimes in disorder, but always vivid with interest. There is nothing more moving than these multiple witnesses to the daily life— the taste, the ideals, the instincts of our fathers. Above all, there is nothing more captivating than the symbolism of the ancient alchemists, so ably translated by these modest medieval statues. In this connection, Notre Dame of Paris, the Philosopher's Church, is indisputably one of the most perfect specimens and, as Victor Hugo said, the most satisfying summary of the hermetic science of which the Church of Saint-Jacques-le-Boucheret was such a complete hieroglyph. The alchemists of the 14th century used to meet there once a week on the day of Saturn, either at the main porch, at the portal of Saint-Marcel, or else at the little Porte Rouge, all decorated with salamanders. Denis Zachary, tells us that this custom was followed until the year 1539, on Sundays and feast days. Noël du Fayol says that the great place for those academy meetings was Notre Dame of Paris. There, amid a dazzling array of painted and gilded arches of string courses and copings of tympana with multicolored figures... Each philosopher would show the result of his labors and work out the next sequence of his researches. It was there that they assessed probabilities and discussed possibilities and studied on the spot the allegory of the Great Book. And going to pause there, of course, they're talking about the Holy Bible, folks, the Great Book. Not the least animated part of these gatherings was the abstruse explanation of the mysterious symbols all around them. In the steps of Goubenau de Montulissant, Cambriel, and all the rest, we shall undertake the pious pilgrimage. Speak to the stones and question them. Alas, it is almost too late. The vandalism of Soufflot has, to a large extent, destroyed what the Souffleurs could admire in the 16th century. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And the word Souffleurs that he says here, what they could admire in the 16th century, that's another word for alchemists, okay, this refers to them fanning the flames of uh, their furnaces, the, the souffleur, or they were also called puffers, that was kind of a uh, a nickname given to alchemists at the time, puffers, and you'll see that as we go further in the book, I think they refer to that at some points too. And if art owes some gratitude to those eminent architects, Toussaint, Geoffrey de Bozwilwald, Violet du Lac, Le Duc, and Lassus, who restored the basilica so odiously profaned, science will never again find what it has lost. However however that may be, and in spite of these regrettable mutilations, the motifs still extant are sufficiently numerous to repay the time and trouble of a visit. Indeed, I shall consider myself satisfied and amply rewarded if I have been able to awaken the curiosity of the reader, to hold the attention of the shrewd observer, and to show to lovers of the occult that it is not impossible, even now, to rediscover the meaning of the secrets hidden under the petrified exterior of this wondrous book of magic and that's the end of part two there folks and he's speaking of the cathedral at Notre Dame in the book he goes through many of the different statuary and the different arts displayed in the cathedral and he points out some of what the hidden alchemical meaning is in some of them but this also is in the language this secret language of symbology that you would have to have some familiarity with in order to translate what the meaning is. And it talks about different alchemical processes. Much of the book, if you don't have somewhat of a background in, in looking at some of these symbolic ideas or these processes of alchemy, you'll be pretty well lost so I would recommend, like, in order to have a better understanding, at least look at a science that's called spagyrics or, or an alchemical process called spagyrics to get a better feel for some of the process that actual sp- spagyricists use to make different compounds. That they, they use different alchemical processes to, to make different things. And it involves using uh, the fire to burn something and reduce it to ash. And then you reconstitute it with, with liquid and there, there's many different steps in the process. And a lot of what Falconelli refers to within the cathedral speaks of these different steps of the different processes. Uh, so to have a better understanding of that, I would recommend look at something about spagyrics, uh, read a book about spagyrics, or look into the spagyric process itself. And there's, there's there are other people out there that could teach you a whole lot more about that process than what i can i'm not a practical alchemist so to say i'm i don't uh, consider myself an alchemist i'm very interested in the subject but there are people out there that actually make use of these different processes to make spagyric tinctures okay Uh, so you could check into those people. I know two of them. As far as the things I look at, I look at the more spiritual side of these things, the spiritual alchemy, because there are different delineations of alchemy. Spigerics would be the plant-based alchemies. There's alchemy that's metal-based or or metallurgic-based that talks about this transmuting of of metals and things like that, and there's, there's different forms of alchemy, but the form of alchemy that I look at and, and study is what's called spiritual alchemy this is probably what i would consider the important one and, and what many of these allegorical alchemical feats were designed to point out as a way forward for much of mankind in, in many of these ideas to to better yourself okay that's what the whole process of alchemy is about it's about bettering yourself or, or reaching a level of exaltation so that being the case There's a spiritual side of the whole endeavor. So it's not just the physical transmuting of lead into gold as they they describe in the medieval texts or or however you want to see it. That's an allegory. Now there are some that do try to use those sciences to transmute things and make tinctures and, and do different things with that. But you do need to understand some of the processes to understand the spiritual alchemy involved with it. So that being said... This is the template that you could use for the spagyric process, or the, the, you know, the transmutation of metals process, or the spiritual alchemy. It's all the same steps and template within it. It's all, all of these different things, and it's a lot to study, and it's a lot to take in, and honestly... I'm at a point, I don't know what to make of all of it. I'll be the first to admit I don't have a full understanding of these things, and there are those out there that have a better understanding of it than me. I've been fortunate that I've been blessed to have the Holy Spirit point me in the right direction with these things and give me some insights and understanding into a lot of these things. And the portion of it that I'm most interested in is being able to read the symbology or the, the secret hidden language that these people use to communicate with each other with. Because the people in positions of power in this world, this elite subculture out there, these elitists at the top of the power structure, they have more of an understanding of these things than we do. And they understand how to use these different ideas and templates and archetypes and concepts to communicate with each other. It's the language of symbology, it's the green language, the language of the birds, the phonetic Kabbalah, these ideas. That's the stuff that I'm most interested in is learning this language so I could know what it is that they're communicating to each other and how to respond to that. Those are the the more basic esoteric things that I explore in this whole alchemical process kind of thing. Uh, If you have an interest in these things pick up this book by Fulconelli and read it. And even though you're going to get lost at certain points, it's worth exploring. And it will put the little seed in your mind of of this certain thing, so that maybe you'll come upon something later, and then get a better understanding as to what Falconelli was talking about here. Anyway, part three. First of all, it is necessary for me to say a word about the term gothic as applied to French art, which imposed its rules on all the productions of the Middle Ages, and whose influence extends from the 12th to 15th century. Some have claimed, wrongly, that it came from the Goths, the ancient Germanic people. Others allege that the word, suggesting something barbarous, was bestowed in derision on a form of art, whose originality and extreme peculiarity were shocking to the people of the 17th and 18th centuries, such as the opinion of the classical school imbued with the decadent principles of the Renaissance. But truth, preserved in the speech of the common people, has ensured the continued use of the expression Gothic art. In spite of the efforts of the academy to substitute the term ogival art, there was an obscure reason for this, which should have made our linguists ponder, since they are always on the lookout for the derivation of words. Pay attention, folks. This is where it gets important. How does it come about that so few compilers of dictionaries have lighted upon the right one? The simple fact is that the explanation must be sought in the Kabbalistic origin of the word, and not in its literal root. And I'm going to pause there. This is... An important idea, and what Falconelli's pointing out here is the whole words have meaning idea. Sounds like, is like. You know these principles we've talked about before in the past? Sounds like, is like. And words have meaning, and if you go back to the original meaning, the etymological meaning of words, sometimes you you get a far different understanding of what's going on with the word. That's what he's pointing out. So let's see what Falconelli has to say here. Some discerning and less superficial authors, struck by the similarity between gothic or gothique and goetic or goetique, have thought that there must be a close connection between gothic art and goetic art, i.e., magic. For me, gothic art, art gothique, is simply a corruption of the word argotique which is can't, and it says in parentheses, can't. And if you're not familiar with it, can't is another term for the language of gypsies. It's a type of language where they, they speak the same language as you, but they're using words that you're not familiar with. It's, it's kind of like slang or jargon, you know, in a sense, okay? So can't. So he's saying it's a corruption of the word argotique, A-R-G-O-T-I-Q-U-E, meaning can't, which sounds exactly the same. This is in conformity with the phonetic law, which governs the traditional Kabbalah in every language and does not pay any attention to spelling. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This is an important idea. This is the premise of the phonetic Kabbalah. It doesn't matter what the spelling is, and it doesn't matter which language the word is in they all have the same root sounds to them. So this is about the spoken word. And this is an important distinction. And I tell people all the time, it's an important distinction, the written word and the spoken word. The spoken word is the one that needs to be more more closely paid attention to rather than the written word. Because spellings change and letter order changes. But you could know just by the sounds in the word. If it's got similar sounds, sounds like, is like, and that's exactly what is pointing out here. So let's get a little bit deeper into that. This is in conformity with the phonetic law, which governs the traditional Kabbalah in every language and does not pay attention to spelling. The cathedral is a work of art goth, gothic art, or of argot, A-R-G-O-T, i.e. cant or slang. So argot means can't or slang. Keep that in mind. Moreover, dictionaries define argot as a language peculiar to all individuals who wish to communicate their thoughts without being understood by outsiders. I'm gonna pause there. See, it's a secret language, folks. This is the whole idea. Let's continue reading. Thus, it certainly is a spoken Kabbalah. The Argotiers, those who use this language, are the hermetic descendants of the Argonauts, who manned the ship Argo. They spoke the language of Ar- Argotique, or our langue verte, green language, or slang, while they were sailing towards the felicitous shores of Colchos to win the famous Golden Fleece. People still say about a very intelligent but rather sly man, he knows everything, he understands can't, all the initiates expressed themselves in cant. The vagrants of the Court of Miracles, headed by the poet Villon, as well as the Freemasons of the Middle Ages, members of the Lodge of God, who built the Argotique masterpieces, which we still admire today. Those constructional sailors, Knots, N-A-U-T-E-S, notice how that sounds like N-O-T-S, also knew the route to the Garden of Hesperides. In our day, Kant is spoken by the humble people, the poor, the despised, the rebels calling for liberty and independence, the outlaws, the tramps, and the wanderers. Kant is the cursed dialect, banned by high society, by the nobility, who are really so little noble. And that's an important idea that the Folkenele puts in here too. The nobility who are really so little noble the well-fed and self-satisfied middle class, luxuriating in the ermine of their ignorance and fatuity. It remains the language of a minority of individuals living outside accepted laws, conventions, customs, and etiquette. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Who is it in this world today that lives outside of accepted laws, conventions, customs, and etiquettes? Wouldn't that be the elite royal family bloodlines of this world, these elitist classes... See, the ones that control things at the top of the power structure. They have diplomatic immunity. They, they do what they want. They're above the law, aren't they? That's what this is referring to, isn't it? The term voyous, street Arabs, that is to say voyants, seers, is applied to them and the even more expressive terms sons or children of the sun. Gothic art is, in fact, the art got or cot, C-O-T, so G-O-T or C-O-T, and we'll see where this is going in a minute, the art of light or of the spirit. People think that such things are merely a play on words. I agree. The important thing is that such wordplay should guide our faith towards certainty, towards positive and scientific truth, which is the key to the religious mystery, and should not leave us wandering in the capricious maze of our imagination." The fact is that there is neither chance nor coincidence nor accidental correspondence here below. All is foreseen, preordained, regulated, and it is not for us to bend to our pleasure the inscrutable will of destiny. If the usual sense of words does not allow us any discovery capable of elevating and instructing us, of bringing us nearer to our Creator, then words become useless. The spoken word... Which gives man his indisputable superiority, his dominion over every living thing, loses its nobility, its greatness, its beauty. It becomes no more than a distressing vanity. And I'm going to pause there, folks. The spoken word. Okay. This is a key idea. The spoken word. Gives man his indisputable superiority, his dominion over every living thing. Without that, man loses his greatness and his beauty. It becomes no more than a distressing vanity. So if if you cannot use the expressed spoken word to get closer to God, or to get better understanding of God, then you're lost, pretty much. It's it's a vanity then. It's a distressing vanity. So this is kind of a, a way to say, if you lose sight of the meaning of these words, this sounds like, is like idea, you're, lo- you're missing out on information that could potentially draw you closer to your creator in, in many ways, or drawing closer to understanding some basic premises that are, are presented. Anyway, let's continue on reading and see what else Folconelli has to say. Besides language, the instrument of the spirit has a life of its own. And I'm going to pause there, folks. That is one of the most important sentences that you could read here. Language is the instrument of spirit, first of all. Language, the spoken language, the written language, language in it, in and of itself is the instrument of spirit. See, without language, we don't express spirit. So that's an important point in and of itself. And it also says here that language has a life of its own, not only the instrument of the spirit with a, a lowercase s, and it doesn't say this here on the page, but the implication is there by stating here Folconelli stating that language has a life of its own that implies the Holy Spirit resides within language Spirit with a capital S resides within language it empowers it it gives it life so language is an important thing the spoken word the written word the spoken word being key here uh, to this uh, phonetic Kabbalah idea so Let let me read that sentence again. We'll start back there. Besides, language, the instrument of the spirit, has a life of its own, even though it is only a reflection of the universal idea. And that's with a capital I idea. We do not invent anything, we do not create anything, all is in everything. Our microcosm is only an infinitesimal animated, thinking, and more or less imperfect particle of the macrocosm. What we believe we have ourselves discovered by an effort of our intelligence exists already elsewhere. Faith gives us a presentiment of what this is. Revelation gives us absolute proof. Often we pass by a phenomenon, or a miracle even, without noticing it. Like men blind and deaf, What unsuspected marvels we should find, if we knew how to dissect words, to strip them of their bark, and liberate the spirit, the divine light which is within. Jesus expressed himself only in parables. Can we deny the truth which the parables teach? In present-day conversation, is it not the ambiguities, the approximations, the puns, or the assonances which characterize spirited people? who are glad to escape from the tyranny of the letter and thereby unwittingly show themselves Kabbalists in their own right. Finally, I would add that argot, A-R-G-O-T, cant, is one of the forms derived from the language of the birds, parent and doyen of all other languages, the one spoken by philosophers and diplomats. It was knowledge of this language which Jesus revealed to his apostles by sending them his spirit, the Holy Ghost. And I'm going to pause there, folks. I think that kind of uh, gives a little credence to what I had said earlier. The, The word, language, language, the instrument of spirit, the instrument of the Holy Spirit, especially this language of the birds idea, the underlying spiritual implication to language. Let me read on here. This is the language which teaches the mystery of things and unveils the most hidden truths. The ancient Incas called it the court language because it was used by diplomats. To them, it was the key to the double science, sacred and profane. And I'm going to pause there, folks. There's the duality idea, the sacred and the profane. And that is what one of the things... One of the uh, dichotomies that the cathedrals actually represent the sacred and the profane. And there's actually a book called The Sacred and the Profane out there you could find that speaks on this very thing. It's an important idea that we need to understand. It's the whole duality concept or duality principle encapsulated there. And I don't know if I could say duality. Duality is not really the proper way to look at it. It's more like polarity more like polarity than duality, with all of these things, because it's essential in this world we live in. That's why it's referred to as a double science here, the sacred and the profane. Anyway, let's get back to the reading. In the Middle Ages, it was called the gay science and the gay knowledge, the language of the gods, the dive botel. Tradition assures us that men spoke it before the building of the Tower of Babel which event caused the sacred language to be perverted and to be totally forgotten by the greater part of humanity. Today, apart from Kant, we find its character in a few local dialects, such as Picard, Provincial, etc., and in the language of the gypsies. Going to pause there. There's another important idea. The language of the gypsies, folks. That's where some of the remnants of this language of the birds idea resides now. This green language, so to say, was a universally known language before the Tower of Babel incident. That's what's what's being inferred here. And we lost that. It's been lost and perverted since then. And so much of that is, is, goes right along with what I've been saying. Many of these ideas have been lost and or perverted over time by those in positions of power to leverage these different ideas against the masses. Mythology would have it that the famous soothsayer, Tiresias, had perfect knowledge of the language of the birds, which Minerva, goddess of wisdom, revealed to him. He shared it, they say, with Thales of Miletus, Melampus, and Apollonius of Tyana, legendary personages whose names in the science we are considering ring eloquently enough to require no analysis from me. And that's the end of the third portion of the book here folks we're gonna drop it right there but there's important ideas to keep in mind here one of the key takeaways is this whole idea of language language being the instrument of spirit and how if we could use this sounds like is like kind of game to understand many of the things that are, are being communicated or even the symbols being used if we, we use a little bit of our intuition to be able to say, well, you know, this, this looks like, so therefore it is like this other thing, we see a path forward, a different means of communicating, a different means of understanding, especially when it comes to the wordplay of these things. And, and this is the, the perfect example, whereas Gothic, Argot, or Goetic, you see how Falconelli made all those connections? Gothic art is equated to Goetic art, which is a form of magic. See, art, magic, science, all being tied together into the same thing. Sounds like, is like, argot, argonauts. See, see how it draws back to the mythology as well? This is another means of alchemy that's, that's being used it draws upon mythological ideas. So if you're not familiar with the mythological stories, then you're not familiar with a certain archetype of a natural energy. That's what these mythological stories represent. It's an archetype of some type of a natural energy going on. And when they hit upon that in their symbolism, they're drawing upon this natural energy. That's why they use the myths as these different types of archetypes to communicate different ideas or do different things or socially engineer the masses with like things like, say, the coronavirus, corona, inferring not only the crown of royalty, but the sun. Inferring these different archetypal ideas or energies and imbuing them into their subject. A coronavirus, and look how they've affected your mind, your crown, your mind. They've captured your mind. They use these ideas all the time. And that's the important thing we need to understand. It's a different way of thinking, and I know it's not comfortable for a lot of people, and a lot of people would think it to be nonsense. But using intuition and the spirit as your guide and understanding some of these basic principles, you could use this sounds-like, is-like concept to be able to muster so much extra meaning out of things that you hadn't seen before, but it's intrinsically there and you just know it. And and that's so much of this goes on in this world because it's it's leveraging these natural energies, these natural archetypes that the unconscious human mind recognizes. But you don't recognize it on a conscious level. And that's the problem. But it does have an indelible effect on your psyche. And they use this stuff to manipulate your mind. They've been doing it for a long time. And if you have an understanding of this, and you get better at using this wordplay, then you could start to break their spell. It's an alchemical spell going on right now, folks. It's been misused against us for the longest time. And people are starting to snap out of this this spell. There's a reason why we have spelling, or we, we spell words. Once again, the whole language inference is there. Magic. The whole I- magical idea. It's all imbued in wordplay. All of it. Spells. We're going to end it right there, and we may explore a little deeper into some of Fulconelli's writings, but those are the important concepts that I wanted to point out here in the works of Fulconelli tonight, and hopefully you folks take away something from this, something useful, and are able to apply it in a different way than I have, and use it for some good application. Because that's what it's all about when it comes down to it. There's plenty of people out there in these quote-unquote elite power circles and stuff that are using some of these ideas in various ways against us or bad ways. We need to start making good usages of this stuff and changing things for the better. And we can do this, first of all, by recognizing the game that they're playing with it and understanding it for what it is. And then second of all, using it in a way that's beneficial for ourselves and turning it around turning it back at them. So that's why it's important that we understand some of these basic concepts. And I hope I'm not talking too far over your heads out there. At this point, I, I mean, I'm just striving to garner more understanding of how these things operate and how we've been manipulated and used it in many ways. And this is just one means of figuring that out, is through searching through some of these alchemical texts and writings, and understanding these archetypal energies that they've been utilizing against us. And that's what all this is about. When you look at things like alchemy and mythology, these are sources that are being used as archetypal energies against us. So it's important that we have a base understanding of some of these ideas and concepts and stories. Because if we don't recognize it for what it is, when they're playing some modern version of it against you, you don't recognize it for what it is, not on a conscious level anyway. But your unconscious mind recognizes the archetype and it makes an indelible impression on your psyche. And one example I could cite for this is an episode on Crow Triple Seven we did talking about the advent of CNN and the 24-hour news cycle, and how they used the story of baby Jessica down the well, and this was hitting on the archetype of Veritas, the story of Veritas, down in the well, truth down the well, gone down the well. That's the archetype they were hitting on with that, and that helped to launch the 24-7 news cycle that's so important in this world. That's why it's important to understand the stories of mythology, and also to understand some of these alchemical processes. The controllers in positions of power in this world use this kind of stuff and leverage this stuff against us. In that example I just said, they, they used it to leverage the launching of the 24-hour news cycle. This had a huge impact on our world, on the minds of men. And they used the mythological archetype of Veritas down the well to do that. There's a lot of different people out there that are exploring this avenue of thought. And we, we all have different pieces of the puzzle. So it's important that we kind of pick up those pieces. And if you could run with it and figure something else out, by all means do so. If you're new to this stuff, if it's a stretch too far for you, you, you have some catching up to do. Because this is definitely something that's leveraged by the power structure against us. It's important to understand, or at least entertain these ideas in your mind. It is a different way of thinking. It's thinking outside the box. But once you start to understand how these different things interrelate, and some would call this maybe synchromysticism, revelation of the method, it's all basically the same thing, just different names for it. These are the principles that are being used to steer society by those in positions of power. And if we understand how to use them or how they're used against us, we can change the direction we're going and don't we need a change in direction right now folks that's the bottom line right there anyway i would like to thank you all for tuning in and let you know i appreciate each and every one of you we'll catch you next time have a good night now
0: come with me